بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وعملا يا كريم رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل لقدة من لساني يفقه قولي My dear brothers and sisters in Islam, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. All praises belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and peace and salutations be upon the final messenger, Muhammad ibn Abdullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I bear witness that there is no one worthy of worship besides one Allah and that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is his final messenger. Uh, brothers and sisters, welcome to part three of our series titled A Blast from the Past, Seerah in the 21st century. Uh, yesterday, walillahi alhamd, we uh, ended our program uh, discussing the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We discussed the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, but as you recall, I was given a red card because time was up. Uh, and we said that today we will complete uh, that particular segment and move to the next segment. The, the, the segment after the lineage of the Prophet wasallam, which I want to share with you all is the story of the elephant, the incident of the elephant. And I wanted to share with you um, the uh, incident after that, meaning for our series, because this is, as we said, a type of fiqh, a seerah. Right? We're not uh, doing this methodical um, traversing through the seerah. Right? We're doing fiqh seerah. We're just taking incidents from the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and trying to deduce lessons. So the next uh, incident that I had for you all was the incident of the opening of the chest of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa But subhanallah, uh, as I sat pondering over the story of uh, or the incident of the elephant, Allah inspired so many lessons, subhanahu wa ta'ala, that I felt uh, just discussing this particular incident will suffice uh, for this particular evening. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us barakah in our time, in our health, and in our deeds. Ameen. Uh, just ending off the discussion related to the uh, lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, yesterday we uh, discussed the lineage up to the grandfather of the Prophet wasallam called Adnan. Uh, and um, we heard so many um, names, names of our beloved Prophet wasallam's grandfathers. Uh, there's a few grandfathers that come to light and shine because of certain incidents specific uh, to their lives. Uh, from them is the grandfather called Qusay. For Qusay, uh, he was the one who was known for the actual rallying of the Quraysh. The actual rallying of the Quraysh to take over the affairs of the Kaaba. So it was his vision and his genius that instigated the Quraysh coming together and taking over uh, the affairs of the Kaaba. We know that the Quraysh were in charge of the Kaaba and the affairs of the Kaaba and, and the Hajj and the pilgrims and so on and so forth, right? Uh, we know this, uh, you know, even from uh, our study of the life of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa after his birth, 
uh, or even after the advent of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the Quraysh had um, influence uh, surrounding the Kaaba and the well of Zamzam and um, the affairs of the Kaaba such as, uh, such as the Hajj. So uh, this grandfather Qusay, he was the one who started the spring, right? Uh, that's what we call it nowadays, isn't it? The spring. Um, so he, he rallied the Quraysh uh, and got them together um, and strategized the actual uh, taking over of the Kaaba and its affairs. And uh, in fact, this particular grandfather of the Prophet wasallam, he was so respected by the Quraysh because of the leadership role which he took and how he strategized the entire affair and how excellent the execution was. He had such great respect amongst the Quraysh, even those that came after would hear the stories of their grandfather Qusay, that when Rasulullah came to them with the message of Islam, they would say, resurrect for us Qusay. Because he was an honest sheikh. He was an honest man. And if he bears testimony to your prophethood, then we will accept. This was the kind of um, uh, respect the Quraysh had uh, for this particular um, person or, or this particular grandfather. So they would say he was an honest man. They would say he was an honorable man. Uh, if you resurrect him and he bears testimony to your witness, we will accept you as a prophet of Allah. Now when Qusay passed away, he left sons. He left four sons, actually. He left four sons. And the most honorable of them was another grandfather um, that we discussed when we discussed the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And that was Abd Banaf. Abd Manaf. And Abd, Man, uh, Abd Manaf, he had a son. And the son's name was Hisham. Or he was known as Hisham. And he was also another grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And this Hisham uh, became famous. Because this, uh, this Hisham, or this grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was said to be the one who started the famous journeys in the summer and the famous journeys in the winter. You know, the Rihlat al-Shita'i wa-Sayf. As we uh, read in uh, Surah Li-Ilafi Quraysh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about the famous uh, caravans and, 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 and uh, the famous journey of uh, the, the summer and the winter that the Quraysh had. This um, uh, grandfather of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Hisham, who was called Hisham, and we'll, we'll discuss why later, he was responsible for um, starting uh, these famous journeys. Now, this person, even though he was known as Hisham, his name was actually Amr. His name was actually Amr. But he became famously known as Hisham. He became famously known as Hisham. Why? Because uh, he was the one who was famously known for preparing or crushing the ingredients and preparing the famous Arab dish known as Tharid for the pilgrims. For the pilgrims. Tharid is a type, is a meal which consists of stock, uh, chicken, uh, or meat, meat rather, and bread. It's a, it's a, it, it was considered an affluent dish. Right? If, you were, if you were given Tharid, then you were honored. You were honored. And he would do so for the pilgrims. He would do so for the pilgrims. So 
this concept of hasha ma yahshumu this process of crushing the ingredients and preparing the thari, uh, the this this meal known as tarid uh, made him famously known as as hisha uh, made him famously known as hisha also from the grandfathers of our beloved prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and this is a famous grandfather that we must all know uh, is the grandfather called abdul muttalib abdul muttalib this was another grandfather of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and he was a famous uh, grandfather of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam why because he took care of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam after his mother passed away uh, as we've read many a time uh, in the seerah of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam now abdul muttalib this particular grandfather uh, is said to have been brought up in medina is said to have been brought up in medina and he was the one responsible for digging the well of zamzam right the well of zamzam became covered and he was the one responsible for recovering it not uh, for recovering this particular well he recovered it there's some stories in the seerah allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best uh, the reality of these stories but they, it states that he actually saw a dream uh, several times and the dream happened in different formations of a person telling him of different places and then this person uh, going away and then finally uh, after a few nights of the dream this person told him of a particular place near the kaaba or a particular direction from the kaaba and this person stayed and saw out the dream with him so he actually woke up and went to this place and uncovered uh, the well of zamzam and and uh, actually took a great responsibility over it because he saw himself as the discoverer right um, until uh, it was said to him that look you know this is the property of the kaaba and the kaaba is handled by the Quraysh. the affairs of the kaaba is handled by the Quraysh. also give us some form of legitimacy to this well and they uh, had uh, discussions about this but this is not uh, or, or, or going into detail with regards to the story is is not or is beyond the scope of this particular uh, classroom but this is just some information for you to know this grandfather as well was the famous grandfather who took an oath and said if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives me 10 sons then I will sacrifice one of them and this tells you the nature of the Quraysh, <laughs> right? For somebody to actually say, if Allah gives me 10 sons, one son I will, I will sacrifice, right? So he was famous for this story as well. Now, no doubt this lineage is a noble lineage. This tribe is a noble tribe. It has respect. And we will come to see in the next story just how much respect this tribe had, right? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose for his beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam this particular lineage. He said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that Allah Almighty chose Kinana. And from the progeny, uh, from the progeny of Ismail, remember we said Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, yesterday we, we discussed that he goes back to Ibrahim alayhi salam via Ismail alayhi salam. He says sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose Kinana from the progeny of Ismail and chose Quraysh from Kinana and chose from Quraysh Banu Hashim and chose me from Banu Hashim, right? This is what he said, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And during our introduction, we discussed the hadith of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu when he said Allah looked at the hearts of his servants and he, looked, he saw the best heart and that heart was the heart of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And then he looked at the hearts of 
uh, of his servants after Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he took the best hearts and made those hearts the companions of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam they made those hearts the ministers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gather us with Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and his companions in Jannah now what are the benefits when we study the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam? Remember we said we're taking incidents and we're discussing benefits. Why have we picked uh, this particular topic, the topic pertaining to the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam? Well, my dear brothers and sisters, we have benefits from this study. The first benefit is to understand why the Quraysh never ever criticized his lineage. We know the Quraysh called him a plethora of names. They said he's a madman. They said he's a magician, right? And they called him so many names. But one thing they never, ever, ever, ever criticized or tried to pollute when they were trying to discredit Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was his lineage. Because this concept of lineage was something well respected by the Quraysh. And, and, and by the people of that time, yesterday we discussed how they respected blood. Blood was important to them, right? They took revenge for the sake of blood. If you, if you messed around with one person, the entire tribe was on your case. You know how they, when they talk about gangs, right? right? So you mess with my brother and the brothers will come, <laughs> right? So um, they valued lineage. And never mind that. The grandfathers in the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam were prominent grandfathers. They were known for massive incidents, right? They were considered noble. And these people, when they would talk to their young, they would mention to them these grandfathers. So if they were to criticize Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam's lineage, this was a contradiction of themselves first and foremost. And this was an insult and oppression to those who they looked up to who had passed away. These grandfathers in the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this was a mercy from Allah. The benefit we take from this is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's mercy was indeed divine. And His mercy is divine subhanahu wa ta'ala. That He, he chose for, He protected Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam by giving him this lineage. Also, by giving Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam this lineage, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the da'wah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So nobody could get up and say that this person comes from, you know, a group or, or a tribe or a clan or a family that really doesn't have anything to be proud of. So he's come with a da'wah and a proposition to try and bring attention to his name and his family's name. Right? So this was protecting the da'wah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So this is from the wisdoms and, and benefits that we get from learning and uh, from understanding firstly uh, this lineage and a little bit about the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Obviously, uh, out of our love for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, we would want to find out his lineage. Remember we said in the first lesson that when you love someone, you want to find out everything about them. Everything. Everything. It might not matter to somebody, but to you it matters. Why? Because you have this deep-rooted love for this person. And we said that love for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa is deen, it's religion, my dear brothers and sisters. This is deen. No one truly believes. No one truly believes 
unless and until you love Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam more than your mother, more than your father, more than your grandmother, more than your grandfather, more than your cousins, more than your children, and so on and so forth. None of us truly believe. So it's deen to love him. And the reason why we sat here today is to show a manifestation, a manifestation of our love for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, because we want to learn more and more and more about him. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gather us with him in Jannah. Ameen. Ameen. And we can sit with him and tell him of the wonderful nights we spent in Ramadan, in cold Melbourne, in the, in, in the Medina. MashaAllah. Right? We loved Medina so much, we couldn't settle, we couldn't go to Medina, but we, we had a masjid and we named it Medina. And we learned about you, O Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. How amazing would that be? Would that be amazing? Make sure you tell him who came to teach you. <laughs> when, we, when, when we discuss how noble the lineage of Rasulullah was and how the Quraysh never ever attempted to criticize it, this becomes even clearer to us in the famous story of Abu Sufyan with the king Hercules or Heraclius. Right? Because Abu Sufyan was asked about the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And Abu Sufyan was told that if you lie, then your companions have to, what you and I would call today, sell you out. Right? They have to sell you out. So they were, they were, they were in a very noble gathering. The, the dignitaries of the Romans were in this gathering. And Heraclius or Hercules was asking Abu Sufyan about this prophet. Who is this prophet that we've heard about in Arabia? Tell us about him. Tell us about him. So he asked him, how is his lineage? Does he come from a noble lineage? Abu Sufyan could not lie. He said he does come from a noble lineage. Even though by day they were calling him names and by night they were calling him names. But, but he could not lie in that circumstance. In fact, uh, he, he says, some of the books of the seerah report him saying, that had I not been worried of my companions, quote-unquote, selling me out, I would have said he comes from a lineage which is not noble. So, you know, this should teach us something, that no one would mess around with the, with, with the, with the, with the grandfathers of the Quraysh and the nobility. Nobody would accept criticism. Even though they were against Muhammad, had Abu Sufyan said something against them, Abu Sufyan's companions would have sold him out and said, no, he has told a lie. They would have defended the grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and defended the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So this was a great mercy upon Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam in terms of this noble lineage that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala granted him. This da'wah which he came which he, which he came with, my dear brothers and sisters, as we said in an earlier sitting, he was not inviting to himself. He was not calling to, uh, promote, to the promotion of his name in society. He was not calling towards the promotion of his family's name in society. He was not teaching this message and propagating this message for material well-being or financial standing, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, right? And nor was he even calling to himself, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, even though we would say, this is fine. He's a prophet of Allah. He's calling to, them, to his message. This is fine. No, he was calling to the haqq. And when he became upset, it wasn't because they, they are rejecting me. It wasn't an ego issue. Like you and I, you know, we might be in a meeting, we're in a team, everyone's pitching ideas, right? And we pitch our idea, and it's not looked at. What happens? 
What happens naturally to you, especially if you're this extrovert character and you have an ego this big? What happens? You think, subhanAllah, they didn't take my idea, they took his idea. Right? You become affected. You become affected. Rasulullah when, when we see in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talking about the extreme sadness that he was showing. Suratul Kahf, فَلَعَلَّكَ بَاخِعٌ نَفْسَكَ عَلَىٰ آثَارِهِمْ Right? Right? إِلَّمْ يُؤْمِنُوا بِهَذَا الْحَدِيثِ أَسَفَ Allah is saying, are you going to cause yourself to become, uh, to, to become harmed, to distract, because of the denial of this hadith, of the message? Not because they reject you, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because they reject the haqq. And this is much more nobler, brothers and sisters. When you invite to the truth, not to yourself. And you become upset, not because you are rejected. Not because the person didn't respect you and, 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 and give due diligence to, you, to, uh, to, uh, to what you said because of you. Rather, you become upset because you know what you're saying is the haqq. And this person has denied the haqq. You become upset because you wish so much goodness for the person that you're inviting. And the fact that they're not accepting this haqq, it af- you, you know is going to be a means of their destruction. You are upset because of that, not because, not because of them actually denying you. This is, this is more nobler. This is more nobler, right? And this is what Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa would do. He would invite towards the haqq. So he was not inviting uh, towards any worldly gain, especially no family gain. For he came from the most noblest, of lineages sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We also learn from these brothers and sisters a lesson, and that lesson is prophecy is not hereditary. Prophecy is not hereditary. Prophecy is who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses to give this responsibility to. That's what we learn from this. Because look at the how many grandfathers before Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa We discussed many yesterday, how many were prophets? None of them were prophets, right? Unless we go deeper all the way to Ismail alayhi salam, right? So none of them were prophets. Prophecy is who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives it to. No one can come today and claim to be a prophet because they come from a certain... Uh, firstly, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa is the seed of all prophets. There's nobody after him, right? But there, there is a view of some people who made a mistake in their understanding of the Sharia. And they said prophecy can be given to a person based on his lineage, based on how much he tries to be a prophet and so on and so forth. They gave different reasons. We say no, this is a misunderstanding of the Sharia. Prophecy is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses. And we know in the hadith that we just cited of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, or from the hadith of, of, of Ibn Mas'ud radiallahu an, he said, Allah looked at the hearts of the, his, his servants, and he chose the best heart to be his messenger, Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. So that is the discussion, brothers and sisters, with regards to uh, the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Then we move on to part two of tonight's lecture, and that is the incident of the elephants. A famous incident which we know about. So famous that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dedicated an entire surah in the Quran for this particular story. And again, this is evidence of how the Sharia values the study of history. The Sharia values the study of history. Why does the, uh, how do we know that the Sharia values the study of history? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, firstly, as we said, at least 30 surahs in the Qur'an have been named after 
historical events. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions many historical events within surahs. And also Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dedicates surahs to a particular event of the past. Like the story of the incident. And this, is a, this story is relevant to our discussion because Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa was also born in this year. So what is the story of the elephant? What is this incident? What actually happened? Well, the event of the elephant was the biggest event of the year. Such that it became, or the year in which this event happened, became known as the year of the elephants. Everybody knew the year of the elephants and everybody knew why. That's how big this event was, you know. We have, you know, at the end of the year, you see the news channels saying, what was the biggest event of the year? What would this year be known for, right? And they try and uh, analyze the biggest breaking news, right? The breaking news of that particular year was the incident of the elephants, such that the year also took on that name. And it occurred during the time of the Prophet's grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, the one who discovered or, or recovered the well of Zamzam. And it happened in the year, as we said, when Rasulullah was born. Now to summarize this incident very quickly so we can sit and take the lessons. What happened was the vice king of Habasha, the vice king of Habasha, this dynasty, this civilization, which was in Yemen, he became jealous of the Kaaba and the Hajj and the fact that many people would gather yearly at the Kaaba for the Hajj and it would become the most amazing place for trade and transactions. So, to answer his jealousy, he constructed a mighty church. He constructed a mighty church. Where? In Yemen, in Sana'a. In Sana'a, in Yemen. He constructed this mighty church and he called it Qulais. He called it Qulais. Now, what was his intention? Obviously, first he was answering his jealousy, but his intention was to shift the, the, the caravans going to Mecca and make them come to Yemen. If they came to Yemen, then most of the people would be there. It would be good for the economy. And we know how it works, right? You've got World Trade Expos. You've got World Cups. Why are countries so interested in this? Right? right now, there's a country in South America called Brazil. I know you all know it already. They're hosting a World Cup. Four years ago, it was in South Africa. Right? In South Africa, they hosted a World Cup. Why is it such an amazing event for countries where governments get involved and they, they allocate billions of dollars for the construction of, of, of airports if needed? Entire airports get constructed for this World Cup. Why? Because the World Cup is a mean... They could not love soccer. Soccer could not mean anything for, for all the president cares, and all the government cares, and all the cabinet cares. But it's a means of bringing... MashaAllah. Share with us the joke. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. As long as you're laughing at my jokes, it's okay. But if you're laughing at your jokes, you have to tell us, so we benefit as well. <laughs> so the World Cup 
brings people from different nationalities, different backgrounds, different languages, and it brings them in large numbers, in large numbers. Perhaps no marketing, branding, advertising campaign could land so many people of such diverse cultures and languages in one country in one particular month. And with the World Cup, they come for one purpose, which is football, right? So this was the idea. This idea existed before. Here this king is saying, look, I want to bring traffic here, right? So I want to create the biggest building that people can come to. So this is what he did. Now, someone from the children of Kinana, someone from the Quraysh, decided to do something about this. So he traveled all the way to Yemen. And it's not a short journey. It's not like now, you know, a hop and a skip and a drop and you land somewhere. <laughs> it wasn't like that then. The journey from Mecca to Medina was a month or more. So imagine Yemen. Yemen is, 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 is far away. This person decided to undertake this journey to go see this building called Qulais. And when he got there, he went into it and he stained the walls of this church with filth. This is what he did. He stained the walls of this church with filth. Why? We'll discuss it uh, when we discuss the benefits. So when this vice king of Habasha called, what was his name? Abraha. Abraha. When he found out, he became infuriated. Infuriated. So he immediately commanded that an army of 60,000 soldiers be put together. 60,000 soldiers. And they take the biggest weapon that they have, which is an elephant, which was not, very, which was not known in the Hijaz region. And we're going to walk and destroy the Kaaba. Human nature, the ego. Right? Retaliation. Look at the world today, subhanallah. Allah musta'an. May Allah ease the affairs of our brothers around the world. And sisters, ameen. Ameen, ya Rabbi. So, he put this army together and he began his journey. And this army was so big that anyone who saw it remembered it. And obviously it moved through many villages and many places to get to Mecca. And when he reached Mecca, he traversed with his army until he reached the eastern parts of the Haram. The eastern parts of the Haram. Until he reached this particular point, he stopped and he set up camp. Now, when he got to this place, there was the wealth of the Quraysh there. And he absorbed this wealth. From the wealth of the Quraysh was 200 camels that belonged to someone who was considered a prominent figure. Abdul Muttalib, this grandfather of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So Abdul Muttalib decided to go and see Abraha. Now Abraha had heard a lot about Abdul Muttalib and heard a lot about many of the uh, senior figures of the Quraysh. And why not? They were in charge of the Kaaba, the affairs of the Kaaba, right? The wall of Zamzam. So many people who came and were uh, treated well, they were, you know, the, 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 the place in, 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 in Mecca was, was a hospitable 
um, very hospitable environment. They had people who were looking after them, right? And these people go back to Yemen and to other places. They talk about the, hosp the hospitality, the hospitality of, of the Quraysh. So already Abraha held Abdul Muttalib in high regard. So it is said when Abdul Muttalib went and entered into the presence of Abraha, he stood up. He, he stood up and honored Abdul Muttalib and spoke highly about Abdul Muttalib. And then when Abdul Muttalib was given the platform to speak, Abdul Muttalib said, I have come to see you because of my 200 camels, which you have usurped and absorbed and stolen. So Abraha said to him, Abraha said to him, that when I saw you, or before I saw you, I held you in high regard. And when I saw you, the regard that I held you in became even higher. But when you spoke, I lost all respect I have for you. Subhanallah. He came to ask for his camels. What's the problem? He said, I have come to destroy the Kaaba, and you have come to debate me with regards to your camels? Where is your honor? The Kaaba is your deen, is your religion, its affairs is your way. Where is your honor? You are, you are debased in my eyesight. So in response to this logic, Abdul Muttalib said famous words, famous words, which the books of history ring. They never forget these words. He said, Abdul Muttalib to Abraha, that indeed this Kaaba has a Rabb. Has a Lord. He said, Indeed, this house has a Lord who will protect it. As for the camels, I am the Lord of these camels, meaning I am the owner. I have come for that which I am in charge of. As for the Kaaba, it has a Lord who will protect it, who is in charge of it. So, Abraha was defiant. Abdul Muttalib left, and those who he, he came with. And they went, as the books of history say, and took refuge by the mountains. We know Makkah is a mountainous, it's, it's a mountainous area. We know Makkah is a valley. They went to take refuge in the mountains. Subhanallah, look at these people who associated idols. They associated partners unto Allah. But with regards to protection of this Kaaba, they believed that there's a Rabb. They went to take protection, right? And then Abraha decided to move this elephant that he was on. Some of the books of history say this ele elephant was named Mahmud or something praised. And this elephant kneeled and refused to move any further. Subhana Rabbi Al-A'la. So he instructed that it be lashed and beaten. But nothing that he did made this elephant move. Thus the army was stuck. The leader of the army cannot move. Where's the rest of the army going to go? And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the famous Ababil. Or the, the, uh, the, the birds with pebbles and an effective airstrike took place. Right? These pebbles fell and the army of Abraha was destroyed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in his book, Alam tara kayfa 
فعلى ربك بأصحاب الفيل ألم يجعل كيدهم في تضليل وأرسل عليهم طيرا أبابيل ترميهم بحجارة من سجيل فجعلهم كعصف مأكول الله سبحانه وتعالى reveals and says have you not considered O Muhammad how your Lord dealt with the companions of the elephant did he not make their plan a plan of misguidance and failure and he sent against them birds in flocks birds in flocks striking them with stones of hard clay and he made them like eaten straw Allahu Akbar destroyed he destroyed them right now believe it or not this incident subhanallah it caused the Quraysh to gain greater traction in terms of their prominence in this peninsula because imagine the people what they're saying now they're saying hold on a second here Abraha was a Christian the Christians are more nobler than these idolaters and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed Abraha this army of Christians they were destroyed and also they're saying that the Quraysh are in charge of the affairs of the Kaaba, right? The, the, the Quraysh are in charge of the affairs of the Kaaba, and Allah has caused this miracle to befall birds with, with uh, clay, pebbles, and these pebbles hit their targets with precision, no collateral damage, like we see with drones and so on and so forth today. Wallahu al-musta'an. May Allah protect the Ummah. Ameen, right? Such precision. They said, they attributed this incident and this miracle to the nature of the Quraysh and the family of the Quraysh and the nobility of the Quraysh. So this gained traction for the Quraysh in this region. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through this incident for those who ponder, prepared the da'wah scene for Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Because think about it, think about it. Where did his da'wah start? It started with the Quraysh. Right? If you start at the top and the top falls, the rest follow like dominoes. Right? Everybody is looking what the Quraysh does. Why? Because they already respect the Quraysh and now their respect has just gone this much more because of what's happened. They see that, you know, these people get divine um, assistance. Right? So the Quraysh or, or, or the, 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 the other um, uh, tribes, they were in awe of the Quraysh. And we'll touch on these points uh, as we move on. Now, this particular incident of the elephants, it took place in the year 571 AD. And uh, the historians say that we could say it was um, towards the end of February, beginning of March, this period. Why? Because it happened in the month of Muharram, right? And this incident is said to have happened a month and a half before the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. A month and a half. Everything is related. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is all wise. A month and a half before the birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, what are the benefits from the story? As I said, there's many. And before the red card comes out, I see the referee has arrived. Let me uh, run through these uh, lessons, these lessons. As I said, subhanallah, Allah uh, made me realize so many uh, uh, benefits from from this particular story that I just set today's discussion uh, to cover this particular story. So seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's assistance, let's discuss the benefits. Firstly, brothers and sisters, as we said earlier, this story highlights the noble lineage of, of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam because Abraha 
even though he wasn't from this region, he heard about these people. He heard about these grandfathers of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So the, the honorability and nobility of this of the lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam transcended the Arabian Peninsula, right? So this further adds detail to how noble uh, this lineage of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was. Number one. Number two, it was a mercy upon our beloved Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam to come from a lineage as noble as this to be part of a tribe that belonged to a well-respected clan. And as, because as we said, if this clan fell, all the clans would fall, right? All the clans would fall. And this is, this is well documented in the seerah. In many instances, in many instances, we see the other tribe saying, you know what? We also confused with regards to this messenger who says, uh, to Muhammad who says he's a messenger and the fight of the Quraysh. But what we will do is, we will observe. If Muhammad wins, we will, accept, we will accept him as a prophet. And if the Quraysh win, then we haven't destroyed our relationship with the most noblest of clans. We still will be in their good books, right? So everybody was watching what the Quraysh would do. This was a mercy to the da'wah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Imagine if his da'wah started at the bottom and he would have to convince this clan. That wouldn't have affected the rest. The rest would have said, well, that's a weak clan. And then the process would have to start again with a new clan. And then with another clan. And then with another clan. Right? But if you start at the top and the top falls, what happens? Everybody comes through immediately in waves. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this in his book. Allah says, When Makkah was opened, when Makkah was opened and the Quraysh fell, and now the Kaaba and the Hajj and the affairs came, uh, the affairs of the Kaaba came uh, within the remit of the Muslims, what happened? Allah says, Subhanallah. When the Quraysh fell, the other clan said, that's it. Let's take the way of Muhammad. Right? 23 years to drop one clan. Imagine, imagine if you had to do it for multi, multiple clans. But you drop one clan, it took you 23 years and the rest followed through immediately. This is a lesson, brothers and sisters. For you and I in our da'wah. For you and I in our da'wah. How we should strategize. How we should conduct the da'wah. Where should we start? This teaches us that you and I should think before we invite towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When we open up an organization and we want to uh, inject a project into the community, what project should we start off with? We should think. We should, uh, you know, we should practice what, 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 what the corporate world calls due diligence, right? We run due diligence. See what the community needs. See what's the best way. Not everything which is beneficial is right. Remember this, brothers and sisters. Not everything which is, has benefit is the right thing to do. It might be something beneficial, but if it's not the right time to do that, it's not the right thing to do. Remember this, right? You could have a community and you're saying, well, you know, I want to start up, I want to build a masjid, I want to build a school, I want to start up weekend classes, I want to start up a feeding program, and so on and so forth, right? This is noble. In all these elements, there's benefit. But does it mean all these things are the right things to do? No. No, it doesn't mean that. 
Because the right thing is doing what you're supposed to do at the time you're supposed to do it, which yields the greatest results. This is efficiency. How do we work out efficiency in business? Right? Right? You prioritize. You prioritize. Right? So, da'wah, starting with the Quraysh, was a priority. It was the right thing to do. It was common sense. It was the best use of, of, of the resources at the time. Rasulullah was 40. He passed away at 63. He just had 23 years to do this. Right? So where would you start? You start at the place at, or what you and I would call the pressure point. That if we drop this pillar, the entire building will come down. It's this pillar that's going to give legitimacy to everybody else and all the other tribes and all the other clans. If we bring this pillar down, it's going to bring everybody down. Right? Instead of me in 100 years going clan to clan to clan to clan, in 23 years I can get all these clans. Isn't that efficiency? Good use of time, good use of wealth, good use of human resources and manpower. We learn this from the story of the elephant. Tell me which management book or strategic management book tells us about the story of the elephant. <laughs> Perhaps they should. Perhaps they should. So. This is a benefit, the da'wah starting at the Quraysh and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set the scene for the Quraysh to become this prominent uh, figure in the Arabian Peninsula. And this, ish, uh, or this incident of the elephant helped gain this great attraction for the Quraysh and helped them remain in this prominent position. Also from the benefits, brothers and sisters, um, Or just before that, there's a, a famous English statement that comes to mind. Have you heard the statement which says, For every hundred people plucking at the leaves of evil, there's one person chopping at its roots. Have you heard that statement? This is a famous statement. And it's used to, to teach different meanings. Right? We, can, we can use this statement and, and, and uh, derive a lesson for it, um, which is appropriate to our discussion. Right? And that is, when we look at 100 people plucking at the leaves of evil, is that being efficient? What is the best way to drop evil? Chop at its roots. But how many people are chopping at its roots as opposed to the people plucking at the leaves? How many Muslim organizations do we have? How many schools do we have? How many madrasas do we have? How many, how many, how many? But how many are working in a way that ensures quantum change? Not just big change. We're talking about taking quantum leaps. How many? How many are chopping at the roots? How many are, are, have prioritized so well that they're doing the right thing at the right time and succeeding in doing that is going to set the way for immense progress. It's going to explode one's organization onto the da'wah scene. And make this organization an organization of high impact. Where every dollar spent is spent with the greatest amount of efficiency. We always say return on investment, ROI. Right? Who, who, who's, who's in the corporate world here and, and, and listens to these things? Who's the entrepreneur and has the business? You're, you're working out your efficiency, right? Companies every quarter hold us back. What's the efficiency here? Let's look at you in your role. Right? How well have you... Uh, achieve the target set to you. Last, last year in this quarter, you were 60% efficiency. This year you had 40, you had 30. What's the problem? Right? Everybody's looking at return on investment because you're receiving a salary. 
If you were 60 last year and 40 this year, there's a problem. You're hemorrhaging the resources of this organization or this company. Return on investment. The same thing we say to the da'wah organizations. Learn from the story of the elephant and how Allah set the scene and sent Muhammad to the Quraysh. This is the greatest use of resources. Right? So we have to ponder. We have to ponder. We have to ponder. And, 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 and being efficient starts off with the vision. And the, the, the discussion detailing this concept of vision is beyond the scope of this particular classroom or class. But perhaps we need to come together one day for at least four hours and just talk about why we should have a vision. Right? So this is from the benefits uh, of the story of the elephant. Also from the benefits of this incident, the incident of the, of the um, elephant is how, and pay attention to this brothers and sisters, is how honor and recognition can be attained through perception creation and not actually being that being perceived. Everybody is a bit rolling their eyes. What did I just say? Was that Latin? No, that was English. That was English. <laughs> it was not Latin. This is a very important point. Let me introduce, let me give you an introduction for you to understand this. We have two traits. We have the personality trait and we have the character trait. The personality trait is the trait that this century is big on. Personalities, fans, being perceived based on appearance. If a rich person walks through this door dressed as a pauper, not a pawpaw, a pawpaw is a fruit. Pauper, meaning a poor person. He's, he's, he's dressed as a poor person. Uh, sorry, he's, he's dressed as a poor person, but he's actually rich. What would 99% of everyone in this masjid say about that person? Rich or poor? And if a poor person walked into this masjid with designer clothing, what would we say immediately? Rich or poor? Rich. This is who we are today, brothers and sisters. And this is dangerous. This is a dangerous trait. This trait, yes, has its benefits. It has its benefits. But its harms are far greater. Why? Because it's a type of hypocrisy. You put out an image and people see you for the image that you put out because they're too shallow to ever think of anything else. We have, been, we have become shallow people, right? Because the 21st century, secularism and in particular consumerism and capitalism has made us, has made us people who are big on the personality trait. It's all about the hype we create. It doesn't matter what it, what it really is. As long as the beat from the box is strong, it doesn't matter how small the box is. Nobody will care. Everybody will say, it must be a big box because that sound was deafening. This is how it is. But the personality trait has a huge flaw. And the huge flaw in the personality trait is that when push comes to shove, your true character comes out. Your true character will always show. When you are out of your comfort zone, the character comes out. I mean, keeping up appearances is hard. We know this. 
Keeping up appearances is hard. Who you truly are will come out. Islam, my dear brothers and sisters, nurtures us to be people of character. To understand things based on character, not on personality. To understand things based on their realities and not how they look. I'll give you an example. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not judge us to have observed the salah because we looked like we were praying salah. No. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will judge us to have observed the salah if the character of the salah was present. The intention. The intention. There's nothing about your actions except the intentions that are present when you observe those actions. I might perceive you to be, mashallah, a pious person performing salah, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not judge you to be that person if your intention is not in its right place. Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَنْظُرُ إِلَىٰ صُوَرِكُمْ وَلَا إِلَىٰ أَجْسَادِكُمْ وَلَاكِنْ يَنْظُرُ إِلَىٰ قُلُوبِكُمْ وَأَعْمَالِكُمْ He said sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not look at your outer appearance and your bodies. He looks at your heart and your deeds. He looks at your character, not at your personality. Why are we, you know, how have I benefited this benefit from this story? Well, think about it. We've said time and time again, how the, how the other tribes held the Quraysh in high regard. Why? Because it looked like Allah supported them by sending birds with stones. Did Allah support them or was Allah supporting his house? Supporting his house. But when you are big on personality and big on perception and big on understanding things, how they look and not how they actually are, you can take this understanding. And it was for the betterment of Rasulullah because respect in the Quraysh lasted even after the Battle of Badr, when they suffered immense losses. No tribe de denounced the Quraysh. Why? They remembered the field, the, the, the army of the elephants that was annihilated, annihilated by birds carrying clay pebbles. They, the perception they had worked in the favor of the da'wah of Muhammad. But you and I, pondering over the story, what do we learn? If we work on character, if we work on character, we should never ever be, we should never ever have thought any better of the Quraysh. And rather thought, let's analyze the situation a bit more. Yes, these birds came. Yes, these things happened. But perhaps it was for some other reasons. Look at Umar ibn Khattab when he sought endorsement for somebody. And somebody said, you know, I endorse this person. He's a good person. What did Umar say? Have you traveled with him? Have you lived with him? Have you traded with him? Meaning, have you been with him in his zones of discomfort? Because when you are with him in those zones of discomfort, his reality will come out. If you haven't, you don't know who he really is. Look at the Sahaba radiallahu anhum ajma'in. Unlike us, rich man, poor man, just by the appearance. So take heed, my dear brothers and sisters, not everything is as it seems. And we learn this from the story of the elephants. We also learn, my dear brothers and sisters, of the importance of having strong beliefs in our mu'taqad, in our aqidah, in our theology. 
Where do we learn this from? This person who went all the way to Yemen, in a, it's hot, this is a desert, right? It's a long journey. And he, even though he chooses to go, you and I would say, who cares, man? He builds a church, he can build a football stadium, right? What is this got to do with the nobility of the Kaaba? No. But the fact that this person took on this journey for so long and experienced such difficulty teaches us how important it is for us to have strong belief in our mu'taqad, in our belief system as well. For this person never did this except to support his belief. Why would someone go and, and, put, and stain the walls of a church? Because the premise behind why this church was built was false. And he wanted to support his belief and his support of the Kaaba. Right? If, if this person did it, who associated partners with Allah, what about yourself and myself, my dear brothers and sisters? Who, who, who declare Allah as one. Surely we need to get off this whole concept of being an apologist and always apologizing for the deen. The haqq is the haqq. Why do you want to apologize? Why are you trying to bend and twist? And try and, 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 and present the deen in a, in, 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 in a manner that that, that makes it lose the honor that it came with. Surely you should be the greatest advocate and supporter of your mu'taqad and belief. I'm not saying we should do this practice of staining somebody else's property. This is wrong. And Allah tells us not to insult the gods and the ways of other people for they in return will insult Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And look at, look at the, 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 the reaction of Abraha. He wanted to destroy the Kaaba. And this is another lesson, brothers and sisters, that we learn. That be people who always look at the result of your actions. Not just people who think, this is what I want to do, I'm going to do it now. No. Take a breath. A deep breath. Take a step back. Islam teaches us patience. And tells us, Al-Ajala, being haste is from shaitan. Acting in haste is from shaitan. Take a deep breath and ask yourself, if I do this, what will be the repercussion? Ask yourself. Many a time in our homes, we don't have this. We get upset. We start screaming. Some people have anger issues, subhanallah. They start banging doors, banging walls. Firstly, they don't understand the repercussion of it. That they have lowered themselves in the eyes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said in His book that the that, that the, the people of taqwa are those who when they become angry, they suppress their anger. Yes, it's human nature to become angry. That's fine. But what you do, how you react to yourself becoming angry, Allah will judge you based on that. The people who suppress Allah makes them from the people of taqwa. The people who don't, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's protection. I mean, brothers and sisters, how many countries I travel through, and there's female abuse in homes, children abuse in homes, where, where, where uh, parents are beating their children, they're threatening their children, emotional abuse, emotional blackmail. This is another problem in communities, where uh, men, husbands, are beating their wives, or, or, or holding their wives in a hard manner, thinking they're men. Wallahi, you're not a man if you do this. You're not a man if you do this. You are the weakest of the weakest. Rasulullah said, Laysa shadidu bisura. The heavyweight champion is not the one who can wrestle. The heavyweight champion is the one who can hold his anger when he becomes angry. Who can maintain himself and not create a catastrophe because of his anger. 
How many people divorce their wives? How many? Because spur of the moment, heat of the moment. How many people cause their organizations to become so disrupted? Spur of the moment. Don't think things through. Immediately take decisions, make decisions. Hire people, fire people. We choose not to forgive. Immediately we want to redeem. We don't look at repercussions. I lose this person now. Uh, maybe it's, he needs to go. But perhaps this is not the right time for him to go. It could be, right? It could be that this is not the right time. The repercussion of him going now is far greater. And our Sharia teaches us that Darul Mafsada Muqaddamun ala Jalbil Maslaha. The prevention of a harm takes precedence over the attainment of a benefit. Wallahi, there's much we can discuss, but time is running out. And I want to share with you uh, some more um, uh, lessons, inshallah, before the end of today. There's something known as extra time. Extra time. You know, sometimes it's zero, zero. There's extra time and penalties, right? So what do we learn as well? Inshallah, we'll finish shortly. What do we also learn from the story of the elephants? We learn, brothers and sisters, the importance of growing our iman in Allah and learning how to put our trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We learn this. Why? Look at Abdul Muttalib. This person who accepted the lordship of Allah and not the unity of Allah's worship, he tells Abraha, I'm not worried about this house. It has a Lord who will protect it. Look at this belief in the Lordship of Allah. And, in, and perhaps tomorrow we'll start off talking about the Lordship of Allah and why people accepted the Rububiyya of Allah and not the Uluhiyya. We'll discuss this tomorrow at the beginning of tomorrow's session, inshallah. But the fact that this man can say, look, I'm here for my camels. Forget about the, the, the house of Allah. This Kaaba has a greater being who will look after it. This is tawakkul. This is putting one's trust in Allah. This is having a true belief in Allah. Where are you and I? Wallahi, where even in the du'as we make, we doubt. Subhanallah. How many people make du'a and doubt whether Allah will accept their du'a? How many people ask Allah for forgiveness and doubt whether Allah has forgiven them? How many people worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and doubt whether Allah has accepted their worship? How many? We have to grow our iman. We have to grow our iman. This, this, this story teaches us this. And wallahi, we should be ashamed when we see the statement of a pagan idolater about his Rabb. And when we look at our condition, and we are from amongst those that declared the oneness of Allah and accepted the prophecy of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa So this is another lesson, my dear brothers and sisters. Also, also, we learn from this, my dear brothers and sisters, How, this is the last thing I'll say, how our tongues make us or break us. Our tongues. Where did I get this from? From how Abraha told Abdul Muttalib, I held you in high regard, but when you spoke, you became somebody debased in front of me. Our tongues make us and break us. This, this you have to understand. This piece of flesh which is so small, this muscle, it's a muscle, right? It's so small, but so sophisticated. It is the means of making us in this life or breaking us, and the means of making us or breaking us in the hereafter. We know the punishment for the liar. We know the punishment for the one who backbites. We know the punishment for the one who gossips and tells tales. We know the punishment for the one who slanders mighty, kabair, major sins. 
all related to one piece of flesh, this tongue. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. And that is why Allah gave this tongue two gates. Our teeth and our lips. Extra security. <laughs> so it doesn't escape. Because if it escapes, what's going to happen? Your downfall in this world and the next. Your downfall in this world and the next. Look, I mean, even you and I know that sometimes we're sitting in a gathering, somebody comes and they remain quiet and we, 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 we feel a sense of respect for them. Not so? Until they open their mouth. You say, oh, subhanallah. Now this person is, uh, this dog, because the mouth obviously orates what's inside. Orates what's inside. And we see that there's nothing but rubbish inside. In fact, there's a famous story of Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah. Abu Hanifa was with his students. And when you spend such a long time with your students, you become close to each other. So Abu Hanifa, when he would teach them one day, or when he would teach them, he would stretch his legs out. Now you and I know stretching out legs is not appropriate when guests come. If we, in our own environment, we can. But when guests come, we sit with a bit of adab, with some manners, right? No offense to those who are stretching out their legs right now. <laughs> I see some people trying to uh, <laughs> fold it. Love us, love us. There's no problem. So Abu Hanifa stretched out his legs and he was teaching. And one day, a person walked into his gathering that looked wise. A stranger. So Abu Hanifa immediately pulled his legs in. And the days would go and this person would be present. And Abu Hanifa would teach. There's different versions to the story. The version I have is that Abu Hanifa rahimahullah one day was teaching the book of fasting. Or the fiqh of fasting. And when he finished teaching, he said, are there any questions? And on this day, this person raised his hand. This person who Abu Hanifa held in high regard. Because he was silent. So Abu Hanifa said, go ahead. We honor our guests, go ahead with your question. He says, I have a very important question. Abu Hanifa said, go ahead. He said, what happens if the first of Ramadan happens to fall on the 10th of Dhul Hijjah? Because we know on the day of Eid, you're not allowed to fast. And first of Ramadan, you have to fast. So what, what happens if the first of Ramadan happens to fall on the 10th of the Hijjah. So Abu Hanifa said, if the first of Ramadan happens to fall on the 10th of the Hijjah, then it's time for Abu Hanifa to stretch his legs out again. <laughs> what happened? What happened? The respect, the respect fell. This tongue makes us or breaks us, brothers and sisters. We learned this from the story of Abraha. Even though Abraha never had a case because Abdul Muttalib spoke about his camels because he, he had belief that Allah will look after the house. But he, his issue was, this Kaaba is your pride and you're not defending it. Your speech dropped you. When we look at Surah Yusuf, when Yusuf السلام, spoke to the king, what did the king say? The king says, I want you to be from amongst my team. Allah says, فَلَمَّا كَلَّمَهُ when Yusuf, when the king spoke to Yusuf, when they interacted verbally, the king saw this the tongue of Yusuf made him a man from a, came from a prison. But when he spoke, 
to Yusuf. Why did Allah say There's nothing excess to requirement in the Quran. Allah could have said, when the king met Yusuf, he was impressed and he wanted Yusuf to be from his diwan, from his ministers. No, Allah says, Allah highlighted the fact that when he spoke to Yusuf, when Yusuf spoke to him, the king immediately raised him in rank and honor and said, immediately I want you to be from my diwan, from my ministers. How can you not be in my team, a man of your caliber? It made him. So understand my dear brothers and sisters, the lesson of the tongue and how to look after it. We learned this too from Surah Al-Fil. The last thing brothers and sisters is, and this is pertinent to this discussion before we shut it, is we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Kaaba against this oppressive person from Habasha. But we know that at the end of time, someone who is a Habashi will come and destroy the Kaaba. Right? This is what will happen before Qiyamah. How do we reconcile this? Our scholars, Rahmatullahi alayhim, say that when Allah protected the Kaaba, the Kaaba existed amidst people who exalted the Kaaba. They honored the Kaaba. And when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes the Kaaba to be destroyed, the Kaaba will exist amidst people who will not honor the Kaaba, who will not respect the Kaaba. So out of respect for the Kaaba, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will remove it. Is this clear? There's no contradiction in terms of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala runs his affairs subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why our scholars say, they advise many a time the people of Makkah, they advise them to be people of good deeds, to be people of charity, to be, to be people of obedience to their parents, to be worthy citizens of Makkah. And they advise the pilgrims and those who go for Umrah and Hajj to be extra diligent, to go there having made a strong intention to leave their riba dealings and to make amends with family members that they might have disunited from and to ask forgiveness from their parents and so on and so forth because they're going to a land that hosts the Kaaba and indeed the Kaaba is honorable. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the understanding. I love you all for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Jazakumullah khairan for your patience. Everything correct said is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He is perfect. And any mistakes are from myself and shaitan and I seek Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's forgiveness. I hope to see you all tomorrow as we discuss uh, part four to our series. We will start off with the introduction that I said I would share and then we will discuss the cutting of the chest of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the lessons that you and I can benefit from this. This is our series called A Blast from the Past and indeed it has been a blast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika. Nashadu an la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayka.